Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artefacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire. In this episode, Dr. Emile Chabal navigates the contemporary echoes and explosions of French colonialism through Matthew Kasovitz's 1995 film, La Haine. When La Haine was released in cinemas in 1995, it blew a hole in the imagination of the French middle classes. Through the dangerous escapades of the young Vince, Hubert and Saïd, director Mathieu Kasovitz comments upon life in the French banlieue. And Lane explosively depicts the biggest themes of banlieue life, from aggressive altercations with the police and everyday racism, to social marginality and spatial exclusion. Indeed, one of the main reasons for the success of the film was that it seemed to touch so many nerves at once, and it did so with tremendous verve, concision and anger. Now, the word banlieue is often translated in English as suburb, but a better translation would be the American term projects, because that's actually what most banlieues originally were. In the 1950s, they were known by the rather more aspirational term of grands ensembles, or large estates in English. And these usually came in the form of a cluster of carefully planned low and high-rise tower blocks, usually located in reclaimed rural land on the edge of French cities and towns. The signature low and high-rise tower blocks that were built at the height of France's post-war reconstruction were supposed to mark the advent of a fairer and more modern society. But the buildings began to fall into a state of disrepair from the late 1970s onwards, partly as a result of the use of substandard building materials. Amidst the worsening conditions, families who had enough disposable income moved away and were replaced by those further down the economic ladder, many of whom were immigrants. These people and their children found themselves stranded when the economic crisis deepened in the 1980s. Unemployment rates in these neighbourhoods quickly soared to 20% or 30%, far higher amongst young people. In some places, more than half of the active population were out of work with little to do except loiter or engage in petty crime. Unlike the slum dwellers of the bidonville, as they were called in early 20th century France, for whom each day was a struggle for survival, the inhabitants of the Grands Ensembles were living in a dream that had turned rotten. The promise of urban renewal, one of the great symbols of post-war modernization, had given way to deprivation and social exclusion. And this situation came to a head in the 1990s and 2000s. By this time, the grandiose term Grand Ensemble had been replaced in the public imagination by the word banlieue. And for most French people at the time, the banlieue were the unruly, violent and overwhelmingly non-white counterpart to the picture postcard France of vineyards and chateaux. In 1995, the same year that Laine was released, Jacques Chirac fought his successful presidential campaign on the theme of insecurity and the fracture sociale, the social fracture. And the fear of the banlieue was a prominent part of his rhetoric. Chirac promised he would reunite France and heal the wounds caused by years of economic stagnation. Now, this history is important because it provides the immediate and the deep-seated context for La Haine. Immediate context because Kesovitz cited the death of a young Zairean man in police custody in 1993 as the primary inspiration 
face film. And this sort of police violence had by the 1990s become an endemic part of banlieue life, with the French police routinely accused of excessive force in their attempts to control an increasingly restless population. Abdel's fictional death in custody in Laen reflects one of many real deaths. There are many stories of deaths in custody and ample evidence of banal police violence from this period and indeed right up to the present day. But the history of the banlieue didn't simply provide a direct inspiration for the film, it also provided this rich material that Gasovitz could use to fill out the background of his characters. As many, many scholars have argued, the inchoate rage of many rioters in the French banlieue, and there have been many episodes of rioting and urban unrest, these are a cry for help, a desperate plea for recognition and investment after decades of discrimination and neglect. While many middle-class French people continue to benefit from the infrastructure, from the legislation and from the protections that were put in place during the post-war economic boom, those who live in the banlieue have been systematically excluded from these gains. Many of the people who live there are the children of migrants who were brought to work in France during the boom, only to be told in the late 1970s they were no longer welcome. And today they experience a sharp end of that spatial class and racial discrimination, which is carried through across generations. They live far from city centres, forced to take over crowded public transport to go to work. They're clearly identifiable by their accent and slang, and they find themselves looked over in favour of job applicants who are whiter and live in more palatable neighbourhoods. And in fact, you can see all of these things happening in the film. The simplest way to put it is that the anger that's underpinned so many moments of unrest in real life, and the anger that simmers just below the surface throughout Laen, are continuous reminders of France's inability to distribute equally the wealth and social protections of which it was so proud during those boom years. France's long and complex imperial history is central to Laen, but not in an explicit way. The film is very, very French. And by this I don't mean it's full of cliched images of baguettes and berets, but it is trying to depict the realities of metropolitan France. It deals with the failings of the French state, it deals with the broken promises of post-war economic growth in France, and it also deals with the return of a dangerous far-right in the form of the Front National, now rebaptized as the Rassemblement National, which has become Europe's longest-standing far-right party. Moreover, and this is really important, the characters are all French. They're not foreigners. They're not immigrants, they're born in metropolitan France, and this is vital to understanding the way the film uses national symbols like the Eiffel Tower. Gassovitz wanted to show how French people could be excluded from France despite holding French citizenship. Vince, Hubert and Saïd are, in the words of French political rhetoric, children of the French Republic. But you wouldn't know that by watching their lives unfold on screen. They move like foreigners in their own country persecuted by the authorities and disdained by middle-class French people who look down on their social origins. It's also a stark reminder that contemporary France, the France of the 1990s, was shaped by and was part of a much larger imperial space, even many decades after the main wave of decolonization came to an end in the early 1960s. First and most obviously, the characters represent a stylized snapshot of French diversity. Vince is Jewish, Hubert is Black African, and Said is of North African origin. They're children of the banlieue, yes, 
but they are simultaneously children of immigration. Throughout the 20th century, France became the home for millions of immigrants, especially from Central and Eastern Europe, the Iberian Peninsula, Italy, and of course, from Francophone North, West and Central Africa, as well as Southeast Asia. And there are references throughout the film to the three main characters' otherness, references to things like the Holocaust and blackness. Even the secondary characters carry something of immigrant France in them, reflecting and refracting this society that had, by the 1990s, by the time the film was made, become de facto diverse, even though France and the French were still struggling to find a way to describe and embrace that diversity. The traces of colonialism are visible too in the physical space. These housing developments were conceived and constructed in the high age of post-war modernization, when planners and technocrats believed the state could reshape society. Many of the same strategies were applied in France's colonies at the time. The best example is probably the extraordinary Constantine Plan, which was designed as a comprehensive economic development package for Algeria in the mid-1950s. The plan's policies were stillborn, because by the time people tried to implement it, Algeria was in the midst of a violent war of decolonization. But the hubris of modernization was plain for all to see. And it's this hubris that gets deconstructed in the film. The physical space of the banlieue doesn't come across as a modern utopia, which is how it was planned, which is how it was imagined. Instead, it appears as a desolate, neglected space on the margins of society, incessantly watched over by a distrustful police and a voyeuristic media. The violence in the film is a product not just of the social relations between the protagonists, but also the spatial configuration in which they find themselves. And you can actually see this really clearly in the gripping scene where the three main characters escape from a police chase. They navigate their banlieue, their home, while the police struggle to keep up. It's very reminiscent of scenes in the great anti-colonial film, The Battle of Algiers, where the French army tried desperately to hunt down anti-colonial activists in the narrow streets of the Caspar. It's not just space that plays a role, it's also race. And race, in a sense, is everywhere and nowhere in this film. At a purely human level, the three main characters are bound together by something much stronger than race. They're united by a shared social and political universe, by this shared space of the banlieue. They transcend race. And this point is made forcefully in the decision to cast that diverse range of characters. But of course, race is everywhere. It's there in the insults of the police officers. It's there in the minds and the mouths of the far-right thugs. It's there in the portrayal of France as a segregated society, and it's there, of course, in the everyday lives of Banlieue residents. It's there, too, in the soundtrack and the visuals, from hip-hop to breakdancing. It drew on and brought to light the burgeoning world of black cultural production in France at the time, a mix of African rhythms, North African song and dance, and African-American culture. Now, many people have commented on the fact that Casavitz was a middle-class white man making a film about a world to which he did not belong. This is perhaps not entirely fair. In his younger days, and remember he was only 27 when Lane was released, Casavitz was a participant in the party scene of the Parisian banlieue. So although he was avowedly middle-class and I don't think ever really pretended to be anything other than that, he felt connected to this world of the banlieue. Now, obviously, a familiarity with a cultural universe of a space is not the same as actually being from the place. But the truth is that he was speaking to the French middle classes about the bon Dieu. He wasn't pretending to be from there. 
What's more, the broadly positive reception of the film from the kind of people he depicted in the film suggested that he'd got his representation more or less correct. There's a tragedy and a nihilism in the film's plot, but the characters are sensitively drawn. To be honest, he makes the actual space of the banlieue look pretty cool. This is one of the reasons which explains why the film was hugely successful, including abroad. It spawned a whole industry of banlieue cinema. But I think the biggest sign of its success was the debate it provoked in France. It threw a hand grenade into ongoing, very live debates at the time about the integration of ethnic minorities in France, the problems of religious fundamentalism. And it's worth recalling that France experienced spin-off terrorism from the Algerian civil war in the 1990s. So this was part of the everyday lives of French people. The film raised this, this question lurking of whether France was a country in decline. The release of the film was also followed only a few years later by the resurgence of a long-standing debate about France's colonial past. And Lane didn't kick-start this debate, but it was part of the background. The film was written by a director who wanted to show a damaged post-colonial nation unable to fulfil its promises. And this echoed the fundamental contradiction at the heart of French colonialism, namely the promise of liberation and emancipation that lay in the myth of the French Revolution of 1789 and the reality of racism, violence and hierarchy that plagued the everyday life of the colonised. It's been 25 years since Lane was released and, watching the film again today, one of the most striking things about it is just how relevant it still feels. Maybe it would be too much to say that Hubert Vince and Said are late 20th or early 21st century colonial subjects, but they perfectly embody that tension between universal values and messy reality that's been a signature feature of modern French history. Empire Lines is produced by Jelena Sofronievich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.